0: always happy to have Janet Fitch at the store. Um, She is a a fixture in our community. I remember when her her first book um, came out, and we were so excited for her. And and every single book she's ever published, she's always had an event here, and we really appreciate that kind of community support. Um, We're so very happy you're here. Yes, support, (laughs) you know. Support Indies. Support Indies. Support Indies. We're always happy to have her here. Um, we have copies of her book available at the uh, register, so please uh, pick one up before uh, we leave. Just a reminder, uh, the signing line will start to my right against uh, game sports mythology. And if you are a, um, a uh, member f- of the store, a friend with benefit, you always get priority in the signing line, okay? So um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Janet Fitch.
1: Oh, thank you guys. I'm short. I'm even. (laughs) Can we uh, notch that up so I don't have to yell? There we go. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I see people I have known from elementary school. I see friends that I have known ever since junior high. I see students of mine. I see other writers who have, you know, go to 80 godzillion of these a year and yet will generously show up for me. I see my neighbors. I see old friends. I see new friends. My husband. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Uh, Relatives, I mean, it's awesome. This is just, you know, when I look at crowds sometimes, I look around and I go, God, I don't want to die with these people. I don't want to ascend into the beyond with these people. But this crowd, I would be happy to die with you guys. I'd be happy. This would be great. I could deal with it. So I wanted to say uh, a bit about Skylight. Uh, I used to live right around the corner from here in uh, 1981 when I was learning to be a writer. And this was my bookstore in a, in a slightly different incarnation. and. Um, I would come here, and I'd look at the books, and I was just learning to be a writer, and it let me do, I dreamt here. I bought books here. i This was my idea of a bookstore. And to be here, to be able to read here all these years later is is such a thrill. Uh, White Oleander, there was a scene in a coffee shop that's now Figaro. It was the Onyx, which is a really shitty coffee shop, but. It was my coffee shop, you know. So I didn't go to Figaro for about 10 years after they changed hands, because it's like, pfft, who are they? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so this is, uh, you know, so it's a real privilege to be here. And it's a, really a r- real privilege to read with you. Um, I'm going to start by reading uh, from my brand new baby, Chimes of a Lost Cathedral. Uh, this is uh, set in the Russian Revolution. I, there are, um, it starts in 1919. Uh, my character is, um, we've been following her since she was a teenager. Now she's pregnant by her, um, her true love is probably putting too fine a polish on it. The guy she just can't get enough of, can't get over, but not her husband. She was looking for a place to wait out her pregnancy in the middle of the Russian Revolution. Um, Things were getting really desperate in Petrograd, which is the former St. Petersburg, and would be Leningrad after the death of Lenin. Uh, Food was short, everything was bad. She was gonna hang out and uh, wait out her pregnancy at the family uh, estate only to find that the mother, who has always had spiritualist tendencies, had opened a spiritual commune there, a cult. She stuck it out as long as she could and then bolted. And, you know, early, you know, she's mid-pregnancy. She needed a place to be. And she took up with a guy who was a railroad man in this backwater town. um, And just, he, he was trying... He was saying, we should get married, and I'll adopt the child. And she's, oh, my God. How am I going to get through this? I don't want to marry him. I'm already married. Um, And she didn't want to marry him. She didn't want him to adopt the child. She didn't want to stay in that town. But she had no choices. She's working as a maid in a rooming house was. And then a train comes through town. And if anybody knows anything about the Russian Revolution, there were agit trains, which were self-contained units. They were trains that had printing press. They had a theater troupe. They had movies. The people, they would take them behind the lines uh, where the fighting was during the Civil War, 1919, the height of the Civil War. And I actually have a map in the book. My publisher agreed to a map. Uh, this, so there's one of Petrograd itself, and then there's a civil war map, so you can see what what I'm talking about. She's in the middle of frickin' nowhere, pregnant. Her hu- so this train comes through. It's painted in constructivist designs, and it's you know it's the f- the hottest thing this little burg has ever seen, and its job is to keep the peasants base. The real job is to keep the peasants from turning on the Red Army in back of the front lines. Keep them fed. Keep them supplied. Don't organize resistance, you know. And so the train was all about uh, agit and propaganda, so agit agitprop, uh, the Red October. And it carried journalists who filed stories along the way back to their cities. It carried... Um, commissars political commissar and but somebody organized the train and this was her estranged husband who is a revolutionary poet named Genya Kuryakin anybody who watched Man from Uncle will know my (laughs) weakness for (laughs) Ilya Kuryakin so uh, his name is Genya Kuryakin and he is crazy about her but it never it didn't work out they're both poets but they're both very strong-willed and and uh, they had had a break, but he never stopped wanting to be together. So she goes to the... Tra- Here she is hugely pregnant. She goes to the train, and he sees her, and he wants her to join the agit train. Soldiers would hitch rides on top, soldiers and sailors. they defend the train because if it was taken, that would be quite a prize. And also they would just hitch rides. So she... She just says, okay, let's go, let's go. I feel sorry for the railroad guy. She really broke his heart, but I'm on the agit train. And she's riding on top with the sailors, you know, climbing on top and, and do helping out where she can, not to be a drag because the commissars were thinking, you know, this fellow traveler, who needs this? Uh, somebody's What are you going to do when it's a choice between the revolution and your pregnant wife? Who are you going to choose? Uh, so that was a question that he thought he answered. But as time goes on and they're following the front, she's not feeling well. She's getting sick. And she's f- a thousand miles from home. Um, and uh, at an agit stop in the middle of nowhere, um, she, her water breaks. And she wants – she's already sick. She's already fevered. And they finally send for a midwife. And so that's the scene I'm going to say. She, she got she, – her water broke, and she would lay on the floor while they were doing the agit um, plays and the movies and the speeches and stuff outside. And She didn't even know how long she was there. Um, so um, – Sometime later, they find her, and her husband takes her into the compartment and uh, uh, is trying to help her out. But it's not working very well. Sometime later, was there still time? The sun remained stalled in the white summer sky. Suddenly, we heard arguing outside the train. Heavy boots. Then the compartment door banged open. Genya, the husband arose and left me closing the door behind him. My hands felt empty without his. Genya I wanted to get up and find him, but I didn't have the strength. I lay there bound up in my dress. How could I go through with this? I had to beg off. I'd been sick ever since Izhevsk. In fact, I'd been sick most of this pregnancy, but now I would be expected to do something, not with my mind, she's a poet, but with my body alone. The door slid back open, and Genya came in, knelt at my bedside. He was biting his lip. There was something he didn't want to tell me. The midwife. There was no midwife. Oh, God. I would have to give birth on this train with no one who knew anything more than some soldier who'd sewn up his buddy once at the front with a needle and thread he just used on his pants. What? There's a problem, Genya said, his forest eyes welling. The skin of his nostrils seemed very thin whenever he was upset. He said the midwife wants you to come to the village. She won't do it here, thinks we're devils. Typical religious morons. I say the hell with it. You can have the baby with us just as well as with her. No, I cried out. Oh, please, could somebody please help me? Someone who knew his ass from a hole in the road. Uh, She's in the wagon outside, said Genya's girlfriend, Apollonia, one of the actors. She couldn't wait to get rid of me. I can make her come in, said Slava, lounging at the door, one of the sailors. Uh, It wouldn't take much. Force some little old lady to attend me with a gun to her head, and if she refuses, you'd shoot her? Why not, he shrugged. You can't fight Soviet power. And leave a village without its midwife? Shoot her right there from the agit train? Well, that would certainly change people's minds about the red cause. Another contraction drove my back into barbed wire. I didn't want to give birth on this train. Better some old lady's izba take me to her. I sat up, tried to rise, but my legs refused to hold me. I sat back, sank back down on the bench, but still upright, clutching genya shivering in the heat, sicker than I'd been in my life take me the hell with those ignorant peasants genya said his jaw dangerously flexed i knew that face that muleish expression he was getting his back up you know what it'll be like priests and icons holy water who who knows what they'll do to you to punish you for being with us i was willing to take my chances genya sometimes other people know something too now help me Reluctantly, he helped me stand, then lifted me in his arms. The sailor led the way. matvey one of the journalists, and a sparsely bearded little peasant waited by a bony horse attached to a cart. In the cart, a woman in a white kerchief sat stiffly next to one of our red soldiers, a rifle casually at his side. She sat firm in her seat. If she was frightened, she gave no indication. She was a big woman, square-shouldered, in a blue apron, her face pockmarked, wide-boned, a rock of defiance. You could have ironed a shirt on her back. It was so broad and straight. She could have been 50. She could have been 90. Genya sighed, you really go with her? Help me up. With one last baleful look, he lifted me up to the soldier who settled me into the seat next to the midwife, Genya started to climb in after her. Nyet, said the old woman, gesturing no, with one finger wagging, not you. This is my husband, I tried to explain. I began to tremble again. I hadn't been upright this long since Izhevsk. The blood surged in my head. She put her hand on my forehead, a strong hand, cool and steady. I wanted her to leave it there forever. You're ill, a fever, how long? Just the sound of her calm, sure voice brought tears to my eyes. That hand, just like Avdolkia's, is her nanny. A week, I think. Has the water come? I nodded. How long ago? It was hard to say if it was five hours or 15, maybe noon. And the suzhenia contractions, how far apart? She was very abrupt but I could see her knowledge struggling with her loathing of us, her deep-seated purpose to bring life into the world getting the upper hand. Twenty minutes, thirty, it's my back, I started to cry. She was nodding coolly. She had seen all of this before. I loved her already. And when was your last confession? Suddenly, Genya was there, grabbing the old lady's blouse like he was going to punch her, yelling in her face with his mighty lungs, what difference does that make, you old fool? Who cares? No, we're not doing this. It's insane. Marina, a long time, I told her. We should get started, the old lady said. No, I forbid it. Marina, you can't let her... The midwife raised her voice. It was clear and hard. Your wife is ill. She's fevered. She's already in danger. She's been sick for a week. You call me insane? You people aren't human. You're animals. Grigori from Krasnaya Gazeta is uh, another newspaper. Ran out of the cr- train car. Kuryakin, it's good news. The Third Army has just taken perm. The tracks open. I heard Marfa Yermilova, the political commissar, Her voice, sharp, it's what we've been waiting for. Other voices, clamoring all at once like seagulls. Can you just give me a minute? Genya roared and knit his fingers atop his head as if things were falling on it. Just a minute. He turned back to the old lady. Anything happens to her, I swear I'll kill you. If God wills it, so it shall be. He howled as if it were he, not I, who was experiencing the deep pain of labor. He grabbed his head like it was on fire. That's it! He shouted at her, scrambling up into the wagon. "You go to your good Christian hell, all right, and I'll and take your piousness with you." He was lifting me up. I'm not leaving my wife with you. Stop it, Genya! I fought him like an animal, wrenching myself from his grip. I need her. I can't do this alone. Put me down. I didn't know where I got the energy, but I arched and twisted like a cat. He had to put me down or drop me. He clutched his head like it was filling with demons. What are you talking about? You're not alone. Look, you have me. You have all of us. <laughs> and he waved his hand towards the comrades of our train. Matvey and Antushin, Grigori, Dudkov the printer, Slava, Apoloniak, Sakov, Marfa Yermilova, Kostya from Pravda, an entire audience smoking, watching our drama. All his spacemen, his propagandists and theoreticians, actors. I'd give all of them for one old baba who could safely deliver my child. I didn't care how many icons I'd have to kiss. Maybe I'd want to kiss them. I had stopped knowing who I was or what I wanted. I just wanted to get out of sight of all these people staring at me and suffer my pain in peace and get this baby out. Your wife is very ill, the midwife said to my panicked Genia, speaking slowly and clearly as if he were deaf, as if he would have to read the words on her lips. She could die. I don't think she will, but it's in the hands of God. I can do more for her than you can of that, I'm sure. I could die. I don't think I really believed it until she said it right out loud. I was sick. I didn't realize how sick, and now the baby was coming. My terror rose into my throat like vomit. It coiled up my spine. I'll kill you myself if you let her die. Where am I? He said, pointing at her, right at her upturned nose, as if he would stab her with the spear of his finger. I swear to you, I'll come back and burn your whole village. I went into a spasm of labor and lay my head in her lap, clutching her apron. Let's go. The old lady held me, held me hard, pressing my back with her fist right where it was breaking, splitting in two. I groaned loud enough for everyone on that train to hear. Pray, said the midwife. Pray to Theotokos, save me, O holy mother of God, after my life with Avdokia the nanny. Uh, I knew the prayer like a song. I whispered it along with her. Oh, my all-gracious queen, Theotokos, my hope, who befriends orphans and intercedes for strangers, the joy of those who sorrow, protectress of those offended. And the words rushed over me like a stream. They soothed me. If I couldn't have Evdokia here with me now, I had this solid peasant woman, and the prayer gave me some human sounds to utter. Resolve as you will, for I have no other help than you, no other intercessor, nor good comforter, only you. O mother of God, may you keep and protect me unto the ages. Amen. Amen, I choked out. She held me and started over again, submerging me with the steady flow of those old words, like an ancient poem, firm in the center, prayed until the cramping left me. Where's Genya, I gasped. He's right over there by the train. I sat up, and yes, there he was with the others, half listening to Marfa Yermilova, half turned from the cart, crushing his cap and his fist, trying not to look at me. Lot's husband. Poor Genya couldn't bear to see anyone suffer. I recalled the night we spent with the thief in the little room in Gritsova Alley. A thief had been attacked by the mob, but that boy had died. The midwife took my hand. Devishka, say goodbye now as if it is your last day on earth. The shock, the fear of it, the reality sank in the rest of the way, death in childbirth. You really think I'm going to die? I whispered, my mouth so dry. You have to submit to whatever comes. Any holding back will make the birth harder. It is important, this farewell. It is the first of the unfastenings. Yes, I understood. For once I had to submit, utterly. This was what was bigger than me, the war I was moving into, bigger than the train, bigger than the sun. It would blot out the sky. I struggled to sit upright. She propped me up. I took a deep breath, goodbye. They all looked up, goodbye, Ganya, don't forget me. I could see him struggling with himself, his shock as great as mine. I knew him, he could show his anger in front of the comrades, but not his tears. He knew everything he did now would be remembered eternally. He had to act as heroic as the worker painted above him on the side of the train. Perhaps the train was the devil after all. Which will you protect, the revolution or your pregnant wife? He was trembling like a horse, his eyes pleading, I forgive you. Now your parents, she had real problems with the parents, now your parents, the old woman told me, wherever they are, your brothers and sisters, your friends. Was I dreaming this? Goodbye, everyone. Tears streamed down my face. Goodbye. Mama, Papa, forgive them, she commanded. Mama, who had said it won't live. And Papa, with Arcadi that night playing into his hands, crying boss, I can't, I don't know how. Pray for guidance. Ask the Holy Mother to show you. Go on. Please, Holy Mother, help me to forgive them. Unbind me. I tried to remember when I had loved them the most. Mama in her morning dress arranging roses. Come help me, Marina. Brushing my hair with her soft ivory brush. Rubbing my cheeks with a rose petal to make them rosy. Papa letting me lace the links into his starched cuffs, teaching me to play chess on Sunday afternoons, bringing the box home from the printers, her first book of poetry that he paid for, my blue books, their gleaming gold leaf, just the first of many, he'd said. I forgive you, I whispered the comrades gathered around genya the politicals, the actors side glancing guiltily at him as he stood among them with his arms folded his cap in his grip under the rising sun of the red october his bright painted train his revolution i forgive gave him all of them kolya Sidioja, papa varvara genya i could see the tears dripping down his sweet face and here was slava Tucking my sheepskin roll next to me in the wagon, my boots and vast shoes, as if tucking my things into my grave. The sky was puffy with clouds. Goodbye, Genya. Goodbye. The peasant slapped the reins and the sky began to move. Thank you. Thank you. So what I'm going to do uh several friends had in, had uh, offered to um intervene, should I say or interlocute, but this is my home store and I thought I would try to do I, I would do something a little different. Um some of you might know that I at new noo- every at noon every Wednesday I do um a little I don't know what you'd call it, a little talk on my Facebook author page. Um and talk about writing issues and talk about, uh, answer questions that people have about writing and just put it up there on the internet. And so I brought some of the questions that they wanted to know about the book and I thought I would let them be my interlocutor tonight. Uh, It also lets me talk about what what I want to talk about. And I'm sort of a DIY person, anyway. Um, if anybody who knows me, so I, I have some of their questions, and I thought I would talk a little bit, f- just for uh, for a few minutes, and then open it up to live questions from you guys. So the first question I had was, um, uh, can we start with this book? It's a book that begins in 1916 uh, with my character's the same age as the, revolu- as the century. So in 1916, middle of World War I, she's 16. When the revolution began, she's 17. Now it's 1919, and we are um, in the middle of the Russian Civil War, and she's 19 years old. So it's because there are always rebels who want to start with a new book. Um, and I, I'm like that too. Uh, and because some people have read the first book a long time ago, they let me put a cast of characters and notes on the first book at the beginning of the book. So you can just read up of who everybody is and just go right into it. Uh, So yes, one can do that. Um, Here's another one. Um, What is the title about? Chimes of a Lost Cathedral. There is a... Myth in Russian uh, culture uh, about the the, um, the invisible city of Kitezh, and Kitezh was under siege by the Mo- by the Mongols. They were uh, under the Mongols for like 300 years. Um, they were under siege by the Mongols, and the city was built without walls. a Shining city built without walls, and people were so good and so faithful that when the Mongols attacked the city sank beneath the waters of Lake Svetloyar, entire, the buildings, the people. And if you are of the faithful, if you are faithful on, upon the midnight, you can hear the chimes beneath the waters of the, of, la- of the lake. And so to me, it's such a metaphor for the soul, you know, and you keep part of yourself. very submerged and safe, and sometimes you can hear those chimes and sometimes you can't. And so that's the, that's the title. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, Jess Davids asked, uh, was there a certain event or thought that planted the seed for this saga? Uh, people who've known me a long time know that I've been obsessed with Russia Forever from Russia with love, you know. We used to play James Bond um, uh, as kids, and walkie-cockies, Ilya, you know, Ilya Kuryakin. Uh, it was Cold War, you know, Russia was the enemy. Uh, some guy, like, pounding the desk with his shoe. It's like, wow, anything that's murky, you know, I'm right there. Um, I'm Russian, my family's Russian. They never talked, the, that generation never talked about it. Never you're American, you know, my parents spoke no Russian, had no idea what went on in the old country. So anything like, you know, that has an omerta like that, I'm very interested. So that piqued my curiosity as well. And then my grandmother takes me to see Dr. Zhilago. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, Strelnikov and that train. I wonder where, wow, that sort of sunk in, didn't it? Um, And then... When I was in junior high, and there are two of my friends from junior high, are, or now I have three, because uh, so three of you from junior high, they used to give girls books like Cress Delahanty and Cherry Ames, Student Nurse. Now, I seem like a cheerful kind of a person, but in those <laughs> days, I more closely resembled Wednesday Adams. <laughs> And here they're giving me frickin' Cherry Ames Student Nurse. You know, and I came home with this huge black cloud over my head, and my dad said, you know, like, what's going on? I showed him this thing they've given us to read, and um, he took a book down from his shelf. He says, Have you read this? And it was Crime and Punishment bludgeoned the landlady to death with an axe because of philosophy <laughs> now that's a book you know and so I was sunk you know Russian literature I took Russian in high school I took Russian in college I majored in history and Russia was my field so this was a matter of time this was like the sunken you know the mine after the war that had been left and then you sit and, and it blows up um, so um, let's see, There's a, um, I went to Russia to do research for the book. I was a student in Leningrad in 1977 when it was still Soviet Union. And I returned 30 years later to do research for this book. And it had changed a great deal. But I had so many questions I had to get answers. I went back twice. I had a fellowship from a Russian foundation to go over and do research in 2009. Got a lot of work done. And uh, um, it took 12 years of my life to do these two books. So six years a book, that's about normal for me. Uh, But uh, there were times somebody said, what was the funnest part? was the hardest part? The hardest part is I felt like I was building a Gothic cathedral all by myself. Like, isn't there supposed to be a whole, like, village doing this? Now, why am I doing this myself? I really despaired, but I I had a motto up on the wall from Dorothy Allison, the novelist who I really respect a lot. And Dorothy Allison said, fiction never exceeds the writer's courage. And I thought, if I fall off this horse just because I'm scared, that's just going to be bullshit that I have to finish this thing. And I have uh, two people from my writer's group, fabulous writers, Rita Williams, David Francis here, who held my hand the whole way. My husband had to read every page as I tore it off the printer. Um, you know, it, takes a, it does take sort of a village. But it finally it finally happened, and to see the second, the whole thing. So one of the questions was, did I intend it to be a two-volume work? You don't ask a soldier in the trenches as the bullets are zinging overhead, is it going to be one or two volume war? You know, you just keep fighting, <laughs> and so it's up to the you know up to the publisher to to decide those questions. I thought I should open it up. We, we're going to have good questions out there too. So let me open it up. I'll answer questions. Um, here's one. Okay, are the characters always listed in the front of Russian books? Often, because uh, Americans sometimes have trouble uh, discerning the names from one another. The thing to know is you you remember the first name and the first initial, and you're out of (laughs) there. That's the way the pros do it. (laughs) What else? What else? I'll, I'll use one of these questions. I've got plenty, but... The amount of time and effort to... Yeah. It, it, I, the way I write is I rewrite, I go back and rewrite what I wrote the day before just to get back into it. So how many drafts is that? I might go back two days. I might go out three days. So the whole draft and then back, the whole draft and then back. So there's usually about four drafts. Um, I drafted the first book completely and then this one you know, continued, and the same process. About four drafts, but writing historically is like writing two books. It takes twice the time, because you have to do the research and write at the same time. I don't believe in doing the research first, because anybody who has gone in to get a recipe for a souffle at 7 o'clock and ended up at four in the morning in Madagascar, reading about lemurs or something, understands what research rapture is. And you, y- when you're writing a historical book, you do not want to get caught in research rapture because the answer is not out there. The answer is the story is, comes from inside you. So you want to write, re- I research the scene that's under my hand, the one that I'm working on, to get details, to, you know, do what I need to do for that. But if I start following some cool, 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 I might be a year down the line and have to rip out, rip all of that out. So I stay pretty close to what I'm working on uh, under my hand. There's one. The first time I w- went as a tourist, and I was – so you're outside buildings. You're walking around like your character. It was January. When I first lived there, it was summer, and the Russians said, you have to come back in the winter. We're not ourselves in the summer. We don't know – we're crazy. You know, there's 23 hours of sunlight. We don't know what to do with ourselves. Come back, come back. So January, you know, it dawn is at 10 in the morning. Sunset's at 3. You know, you g- now we're ourselves, you know. Now you're going to understand us. So I I just walked around like I was my character, touched the rails, described the buildings, described the light. When I went back the second time, I went back to, uh, for this, in this fellowship, they set up um, interviews with the heads of institutions, the Akhmatova Museum, the Museum of the City of St. Petersburg, Museum of Political History and i had all of these questions that i was able to answer so it was it was it was deluxe and uh save my story and there was one in the back and then here <laughs> Yes, I work from place. Place is super. All my students uh, here will tell you so. Place is absolutely important to me. I I kind of, my mind works geographically. If I don't know where, then I just can't feel it. Uh, Whether I'm writing about L.A. or I'm writing about Petersburg, I have to know where people lived, where they walked, what they saw, uh, and the texture of reality, sensuality, is really important to me. I want to get all the senses. I want you to really be in the body of the protagonist as they move through their story. I think that's how how things become vivid for the reader. And then there was one here. Was the first book translated into Russian published after? No. No, nothing. Uh, White, o- White Oleander was published in Russia. Um but not no, not yet, I'm hoping. Uh, she was saying she wondered what the reaction would be. Well, I'll tell you, the Russians know less about the revolution than we do. The scholarship is really good in the West. Um, but in Russia, it's so political. The, the history had been erased and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten um, that it was e- it's easier for Western historians to study the revolution, and 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 now again access to those archives is drying up. You know that two thousand nine was ten years ago, and it's drying up again. So, um, but I would love to, it to be published there. The Russian reading I did for White Oleander was very funny, uh, because here they ask questions about how you wrote it, and you know point of view blah blah you know like writer questions there they well, this woman asked me what was the meaning of life <laughs> and i sat there it's like this is they they look to their f- writers to think about the big issues the biggest issues and I, it was like oh i'm in russia now <laughs> and i better deliver on this one what is the meaning of life is to make us more human to deepen our humanity and that's what writing is about too and that's what reading is about too so i felt very privileged to be in that in that place so we have time for one more David who should be like comatose on this book already. right. <laughs> 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 You're so sweet. We would say Janet what if Marina just goes and does this?
0: Like no, that's not the history. That's not what happened.
1: So I just applaud you for being so rigorous. Oh, I absolutely ha- w- had to be exact. Anybody knows me. I'm I'm sort of fanatic <laughs> in many ways and I did not want any historian to read this and go, she does not know what she's saying. I had an historian review it in the New York Times. (laughs) Wasn't that a good idea? An historian reviewing a book about, you know, a late teenager in Russia having sex, God forbid, and all this personal stuff. You know, why didn't I write about, you know, Alexandra Colontai instead of some girl? It's like, my off you know <laughs> but he never says I got anything wrong <laughs> so <laughs> and there's another writer here who was the one who introduced me to that fellowship so Irene I wouldn't have been able to finish this book look it's done oh my god so anyway is that it thank you very much for coming